For quite a while now, I've been anticipating this text, um, looking forward to this chapter, in some ways looking forward to it, but I was just telling my brother-in-law this past week, in some ways I've almost been dreading uh, coming to this text. It's one of the most poignant, one of the most painful, but one of the most powerful stories, I think, in all of Scripture. As a father of two sons and two daughters, as a father, this is hard to imagine. I'm a father. As a son, this is hard to imagine. I'm a son as well. And as a sinner, which I also am, who sees in this text the shadow of the cross, it's hard to look at this story without blinking, to read it without weeping. Genesis 22 is the climactic story in the life of Abraham. We've been tracing the narrative of his life now for several weeks in our study through Genesis, but this is the final and ultimate test of Abraham's faith as God calls for the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. Gordon Wenham calls this passage the aesthetic and theological summit of the whole story of Abraham, and I agree. It's the climax of Abraham's life, and it is also a literary masterpiece. Moses, the the narrator, is a master storyteller who introduces tension, and he leaves us there. He, He makes us squirm. He leaves out some details that I would like to know. He includes others that we need to know and leads us to an undeniable conclusion. But too often, we who are familiar with this story, we read too quickly through it. We want to get to the happy ending, don't we? We know that there's a ram stuck in the thicket back behind me over here. Some of us are so familiar with this story that our knowledge of the ending actually keeps us from feeling the weight of Abraham's gut-wrenching decision and therefore keeps us from seeing the beauty and the glory of God's merciful provision. What I want to do today is simply immerse us in this story, to tell this story. Uh, For those of you who take notes, there's not much of an outline this morning. This passage just defied every attempt of mine to create some outline for it. It's a story that needs to be told, and it speaks for itself. And so I want us to enter into it this morning and to feel it, because these are real people with real relationships with real emotions, real hopes, real dreams, real fears. So I want you to imagine with me that you're reading this for the first time. Pretend that you don't know how this ends. Or better yet, put yourself in Abraham's sandals and in Isaac's. Because when you do, what you will discover, as I did this week, is that this story speaks powerfully, revealing the kind of faith that God desires in us. And pointing us to certain themes, theological themes, weighty, massive, beautiful, glorious, essential themes that run far deeper than the surface of this story. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We see here God's instruction to Abraham in verses 1 and 2 that sets the scene for everything that will follow. Moses says, after these things, we say, what things are you talking about, Moses? Well, remember chapter 21, Ishmael is gone. He's been sent off along with his mother, Hagar. And Isaac, the promised son, had been born, and he is now grown. Isaac is the son of promise, the miraculous son of Abraham, you remember, that Abraham and Sarah had had in their old age. It was a miracle by God's grace, a miracle son that they had waited so long for. And it was upon this son, Isaac, their only son, the son of promise, the son that God had given them. It was upon him that all of God's promises depended. And Isaac is now older. He's likely a teenager, no longer a child, but he's not yet a man. He's still underneath his father's care and authority. Moses says, after these things, God tested Abraham. He tested him. 
You see, Abraham had been called by God years before. You remember back in chapter 12, God had said, Abraham, I want you to go from your father's house, from your country, from your kindred, to a place that I will show you, and I'm going to bless you, give you descendants and land, and through you all, the earth will be blessed. And Abraham had obeyed. He had left his home, and we've been tracing his life ever since that point. He's been on this journey of faith. And he's had successes and failures, times where he has succeeded, times where unbelief and doubt and fear have led him to compromise. But in all of this, he has believed the promise of God. And we saw in chapter 15 that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It's real faith. It's genuine faith, if imperfect, if faltering at times. Abraham believes. But now that journey of faith reaches the most critical point. You see, Abraham's journey is not over. The greatest test of that faith, the final test of that faith, is now at hand. And it comes not in the form of danger from without. It comes not in the form of famine or opposition, but in the form of a command from God. The same God who had made these promises to him in the first place. As always, in your life and Abraham's and my life, the word of God must be the focus of faith. And now God speaks to Abraham. He speaks. And obedience to the word of God will be the test of his faith. Notice the content of God's command to him. He says, Abraham addresses him by name. Abraham is the name that God had given him. No longer is he Abram. He is Abraham, father of nations. I gave you that name and I'm about to test your faith in my power to fulfill that promise. Abraham, are you willing to hear my voice? It's an invitation. Abraham responds, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm willing to hear what you will say. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. Three times here, son is emphasized. Did you see that? Verse two, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love love. Now, this is not God being cruel. This is not God twisting the knife deeper. This is God acknowledging to Abraham that he knows how hard this is going to be, and he is aware of just how costly the obedience is that he's asking Abraham for. In the Hebrew text, if we could look at it in the original language, you'd see that this is not a harsh, cold command. There's actually a little particle, na, which, which could almost be translated, please. Abraham, please, listen, I want you to take your son, your only son. There's gentleness here in God's command. He knows exactly how difficult the thing is that he's asking Abraham to do. And he tells him, take your son, and you are to go. Go to the land of Moriah. The word Moriah means seen by God. There, God will see whether Abraham's faith is genuine, whether it is authentic, whether or not his faith will pass the test, whether or not his love for God is greater than his love for his son. This will be the place of proving, go to the land of Moriah, a place I will show you there. And he says, offer your son as a burnt offering. Now, in a burnt offering, the whole animal, whether it was a a sheep or a ram or or a a bull or a calf, it would be cut up into pieces and burned completely, representing full dedication of the whole person who's offering the sacrifice. A burnt offering says, God, you have all of me. You have all of me. And it also represented atonement for sins, the death of this animal and the shedding of his blood in the place for mine. And God says, Abraham, I want you to offer your son. Abraham had done this before with animals, but now God tells him to offer his son. As we read through this, we can't help but notice that this divine command has distinct echoes of that first call back in chapter 12, doesn't it? The three-time repetition of your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and you need to go. It reminds us of God saying, Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I will show you. Go from your father's house, your country, your kindred. That threefold repetition there, that was the starting line. This is the finish line. Abraham has come so far, but this will now be the moment of truth where everything that was promised back in chapter 12 and confirmed and and solidified into a covenant, everything we've seen, it will all be put to the test here. It all rides on this because that's all for nothing if this final test is not passed. 
if Abraham does not believe and does not obey. God is testing Abraham's loyalty. Does Abraham love God with all his heart and soul and mind? And will he obey no matter what? God is testing his faith in the promise. You see, the promise that depended on Isaac, that how will he have descendants, and how will God make a great nation through him, and how will they inherit the land, and how will God bless all the families of the earth through them if his one son is killed? It's all being put to the test. God had given them a son, we saw last week, and now he's asking them to give him back. Just as he'd been instructed to send Ishmael into the wilderness, now he's asked to send Isaac to the altar. And how does Abraham respond? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. We're not told how Abraham felt. We can imagine, those of you who are parents, we can imagine what he felt like, but Moses only tells us what he did. In spite of the inner conflict that I'm sure he was wrestling with, what we're shown here is a man who obeys immediately, early in the morning. First thing, no hesitation, without delay. And notice that he does it all himself. Abraham is a man of great power, a man who has many servants, a man who even has a son who's responsible to obey him. But Abraham himself makes the preparations. He is obeying to the hilt, as it were, fully doing all that God had required of him. Not only is his obedience immediate, it's sustained. Look with me in verse 4. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Three days, Abraham and Isaac and the two servants are on this journey. What this means is that not only is Abraham's obedience immediate, but it's sustained. He had three days to think about what was to happen next. He had three days to change his mind. He had three days to get cold feet and back out. He had three days to justify reasons why he didn't have to go through with it. But for three days, he marched on in obedience. This is more painful than just getting it over with right away, just ripping the Band-Aid off. But Abraham marches on. Then ominously, the narrator Moses tells us that he lifts up his eyes and sees the place. And you can imagine that as he sees it, that his heart sinks. I'm sure he wished that the journey would have lasted longer. Because he dreaded what was going to happen next when they finally arrive. And when they arrive, notice what it says in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Again, in the Hebrew text, if we could look at it, you'd see that that, that verb, come again, it's not as clear in, in most of our English translations. That word is actually plural. You could literally translate this. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come again. He tells them that we'll both come back. How can Abraham say this? Why would he say this to his servants? Is he planning to disobey God? Has he gotten cold feet at the last moment? Said, I'm not going to go through with it. We'll figure something out, and then we'll come back. Or is he... Does he perhaps know what's going to happen? Does he know that God's not going to ask him to go through with it? Well, Hebrews 11 actually tells us what Abraham was thinking. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham was planning to follow through with it. But he believed that God's power was greater even than death. And that informed his faith. And that compelled him to obey. He wasn't sure exactly how all this would work out. Perhaps God would even raise him from the dead. But he leaves the fulfillment of the promises in the hands of God. He knew that Isaac was the promised son. He knew that God's promises depended on him. And he knew that God had asked him to sacrifice Isaac. 
And he didn't know exactly how it was going to all work out, but he left it in the hands of God, assuming that maybe God will raise him from the dead. I love how one author describes it, that Abraham, in a sense, adds a line to the song of Job. You remember Job, who lost everything, whose faith was also tested? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abraham sort of adds a line. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and the Lord gives back again. That is his confidence. And that's the only explanation for his obedience, is that he had faith, faith in the power of his God. Verse 6 moves on. And now the narration, which has moved quickly, I mean three days and in five verses, now things slow down to capture every painful detail of what happens next. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. The wood is laid on Isaac like a condemned man carrying his cross. His destiny is to be the burnt offering. Abraham takes in his hand the knife and the fire. He is to be the one who offers the sacrifice. John Calvin points out that it's one thing to lose your son. It's, it's even worse to lose him by violent and tragic death. But it's the most painful tragedy to have these things happen because of the work of your own hands as the father. As they begin next, perhaps, the longest and most painful walk of Abraham's life up the mountain. The donkeys and the servants left behind. Isaac carries the wood, symbolically, ominously. And Abraham carries the knife and the fire. Moses tells us they went on together, alone, but alone together. No servants, no donkeys. Father and son, side by side, climbing the mountain And now, for the first time and the only time, Isaac speaks. Look in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? The voice of his son, his only son, the son that he loved, pierces the silence like a knife. He asks the question that Abraham had been chewing on for the last three days and a question that he was dreading. Where is the lamb? Everything else is here, but what are we going to sacrifice? This question highlights the tension and adds to it. Dad, what's going to happen? Isaac asks. And Abraham's answer does nothing to relieve the tension. Look how he responds in verse 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. That same little sentence again, side by side, in silence. Abraham's answer does not relieve the tension, but notice what his answer does do. And this is instructive for us. Abraham's answer affirms his affection for his son. He doesn't say, don't ask stupid questions, just do what you're told. He doesn't lie to him and disrespect him by ignoring his question. He says, my son, a term of affection, a term of endearment. He affirms his affection for his son, but even more importantly, he affirms his confidence in God. In the agony of the moment, looking into his son's eyes, hearing his son's voice, he places the focus on God. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This, my friends, is the impulse of faith. He didn't have an answer. He didn't know exactly how this was all going to work out. And what he did know was too painful to even share. So what he does is simply looks to God. God will provide. This is his firm conviction. I think in Abraham's mind, this question was a painful irony. The painful irony was that God has provided already in Isaac, the son of promise. Back in chapter 21, three times we see the repetition. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. 
And God did this to her at the time of which he had spoken. Three times we were shown that Isaac is the son of promise, that God gave them to, God gave him to them. In Abraham's mind, God has provided the lamb for the burnt offering. But all Isaac hears is an affirmation that God will provide, God will work it out, and that's enough for him. He trusts his dad. And his dad trusts God, and that's enough for him. So again, they walk on in silence. Side by side, Isaac carrying the load of wood, and Abraham carrying the much heavier burden of the knowledge of what he must soon do. When they reached the spot, again, the emphasis is on Abraham's obedience. Look in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his knife and took, or reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, Abraham is the one doing everything. He's the subject of all these verbs. He builds the altar, he lays the wood in order, and then the plan becomes clear to Isaac as his father binds him lays him on the altar. And now we see the faith and submission of Isaac, don't we? Like his father, Isaac trusts and obeys no matter the cost. Isaac is not a little boy. He's strong enough to carry a load of wood up a mountain. He's probably a teenager, 15, 16 years old. And his dad is well over 100, 115, 116 years old. Isaac could have resisted. He could have fought back. He could have protested or, or, or argued or asked questions. He could have ran. But he does nothing. He consents. He submits. Like his father, he trusts and obeys no matter the cost. He does not resist or question or flee. Like a sheep before her shearers is silent, Isaac does not open his mouth. He embraces his role as the sacrificial lamb in a beautiful picture of faith and obedience and humility. And then the moment of truth. Abraham took the knife and raised it to slaughter his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, the son of promise, the hope for the future, the gift of God that had brought laughter and joy to Abraham and Sarah, who now lay bound on the altar. Was there fear? Did tears blur Abraham's vision? Did Isaac look him in the eye? Or did he close his eyes and turn away? All were told that Abraham is in the act of obeying. And then a word of mercy shatters the silence. The voice of God, which had instructed Abraham to obey, is now the only thing that stops the knife from falling. The tension has been building, the emotions are intense. But in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham has obeyed. He has trusted God. He's followed through all the way till the final moment. And now God responds. God intervenes. God is here now to provide and to bless. Like in verse 1, the word of God comes to Abraham with instruction. And he calls him out by name. And the first time, he's only said his name once. But this time, you almost get the sense that the knife is in motion. He says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And it is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, God the Son who speaks. He tells him to stop. Why? Why did God tell him to stop? Had God changed his mind? Just kidding. I didn't really mean it. No, the reason God tells him to stop is because Abraham has passed the test. Abraham has passed the test. He says, now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. And here we see that it's God the Son speaking because he says, from me. You've not withheld him from me. 
You see, Abraham had given up everything. He had trusted and obeyed his God to the end. You see, this is what God was after. This kind of faith and obedience was what he desired to see. It had never been about child sacrifice in the first place. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6. The prophet writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The implied answer to this rhetorical question is no, of course not. Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, what God desires is a life of faithful and humble obedience. That's what it means to do justice and kindness, to love kindness, to walk humbly before your God. God desires a life of faithful obedience, and that is exactly what Abraham has offered to him. He says, yes, God, yes, I will do all that you require. He has shown that God was his greatest treasure. He has shown that he loves the Lord more than even he loves his son. He has shown that the word of God is his highest authority, that disobeying the command of God was a more dreadful prospect than even the sacrifice of his own son. He has shown that he believed in God's promise and that even death could not invalidate the divine plan. And now God knew. Not in the sense that he was unaware before, but in the sense that his faith has now been visibly proven and demonstrated. Now I know that you fear God. And God was pleased. And then comes the fulfillment of Abraham's expectant answer to Isaac's question. A ram is in the thicket. Look in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. There is a ram stuck in the thicket, already there. The text implies it's been there the whole time, but they had not seen it. God had planned and provided already, and now they discover God's provision. God had indeed provided, as Abraham had said. And then I think perhaps the most beautiful words in this story, words that point to the most beautiful truth in the universe, it says he offered the ram instead of his son. If you mark in your Bible, that's something that should be underlined, circled, highlighted with a star in the margin. He offered the ram instead of his son. You see, this great crisis, all of this tension, the deep agony of this story, it dissolves as God speaks a word of mercy and provides a substitute, a life for a life, a sacrifice to take Isaac's Place. The merciful provision of God is commemorated by Abraham in the naming of this place. He says, this place is now going to be called the Lord will provide. The word for see and provide, it's really the same word. God sees in the sense that he will see what our need is and he will see to it that that need is met. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Even at the time of the writing of this book, that place was still known by this name. This is not an abstract concept for Abraham and Isaac. The Lord will provide. That is truth that is burned deeply into their souls. And as they walked down the mountain that day, it was a truth they would never forget. And these words are preserved for us as well, that we might see the power and beauty of the merciful God who provides what he demands, a substitute for those doomed to die. Not only does God provide so that, Abra so that Isaac's life is spared, God also blesses Abraham. Look in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and says, and again, we can tell here this is God himself speaking. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God blesses Abraham, and he declares this familiar promise once again, but he swears for the first time by an oath. This is the first time we see this concept, these words, that God is swearing by an oath. And and what do we swear by? By things that are precious and powerful, right? Things that are meaningful. And what does God swear by? By himself. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And he swears this, I will surely bless you. He said he's going to bless him lots of times, but this time he says, I will surely bless you. I'm really going to bless you. I'm definitely going to bless you now because I see your obedience. There's a new emphasis, a new intensity here. He he adds new elements we haven't seen before. We've been told before that Abraham would have, have children as many as the stars in the sky, but now he adds even another element as the sand that is on the seashore. And he tells them, not only will will your offspring inherit the land, they will possess the gates of their enemies. It's expanding and growing more clear what God is going to do through Abraham. Why? Two times he says, because, because you've obeyed my voice. The promises depend on God for their fulfillment. We've emphasized that again and again and again. But God will accomplish his promises through the obedience of his servants, not apart from them. God is the one who provides. God is the one who blesses. God is the one who gives. God is the one who performs, but he does it through human means. If Abraham will not believe and obey, Abraham, er, Isaac will not become the child of promise through whom all these things come to pass, but because Abraham has obeyed and believed, God says, I'm going to do this through him, through you. In light of Abraham's obedience, the covenant promise is confirmed with an oath. Abraham has passed the test. So they go home, emotionally exhausted, humbled, relieved, and rejoicing in the mercy and faithfulness and grace of God. Abraham's faith has been tested and found true. And Isaac has seen firsthand the faith of his father and the faithfulness of his father's God which is important because Isaac is going to be the next generation of this family, and it will be now his faith in the promise that must carry this family forward into the future. What a poignant and powerful story of faith and obedience and provision and rescue. And I've told you before, I didn't want to try to fit this story into an outline. I just wanted to tell it and let us see what's there. But we need to reflect on this story. What does it mean Yes, it's gripping. Yes, it's compelling. But what does it mean? And why is it recorded in Scripture? And what must we learn from this? Well, there's really two levels to this story, and and we need to see both. There's two levels. First of all, the first level at which we read the story is looking at the life of Abraham and learning from that. In the life of Abraham, we see this. And if you are taking notes, here's, here's one of two things you can write down this morning. Genuine faith relinquishes all and trusts God's provision. That's what we learn from Abraham. Genuine faith relinquishes all and trusts in God's provision. Abraham is held up for us as the model of faith. Not just here, but again in Hebrews chapter 11. What we see here is that what God desires from us is nothing less than absolute trust and submission. There's no such thing as a halfway faith or halfway obedience, halfway discipleship. It doesn't work that way. Let me ask you, what is it this morning that you will not relinquish to God? Because he demands all from his followers. Not because he's spiteful, not because he's cruel, not because he wants to deprive us of good things, but but because he wants to strengthen our faith and fulfill his promises to us and bless our obedience. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Abraham shows us what this looks like. 
Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Abraham shows us what this looks like. To hate here does not mean that, that, we, that we really don't like our family members and mistreat them. It means that our love for God and our loyalty to him is so strong that it dwarfs even our love and commitment to our biological family. Abraham shows us what this looks like. Luke 14, Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Abraham shows us what this looks like. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul doesn't tell us to literally climb onto an altar and die. He says a living sacrifice, a whole life of submission and obedience where everything you have has been offered to God for his purposes, for his use, for his honor, for his glory. That's supposed to describe the entire life of the believer. And Abraham shows us what that looks like. For an old man who was nearing death, his son represented everything. The heir of all that he had, the one who would bear his name, who would carry on his legacy into the future. To lose Isaac for Abraham was to lose everything. And he said, God, I give you my everything. Abraham shows us what this looks like. Listen, there must be nothing in our lives, no possession, no dream, no person, nothing that keeps us back from following Christ. This story, Abraham's faith and obedience shows us what this looks like, and it is powerful. The Bible tells us that if we lack the kind of faith that produces radical obedience, we are not truly saved. We are not truly believers. That's not me saying this. The Bible says this. James says this. James chapter 2, verse 20 do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James shows us Abraham as an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. James affirms what Paul also tells us. What Genesis says that by his faith Abraham was made righteous. But he also tells us that by his works this righteousness was demonstrated. It was proven. It was manifested to God and to others that his faith was genuine and authentic. If there's not this kind of obedience in your life. If you want to receive Jesus as Savior and receive his blessings, but you're not interested as Jesus in, as Lord and as King who demands all and you want to hold back on certain things, the Bible tells you to examine yourself because that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that saves. But not only do we learn from what Abraham did, that's one layer of this. We need to look at a second layer. We need even more importantly to see what God did in this story. What God did was not only test and confirm and strengthen Abraham's faith, God also provided for us in this poignant story a beautiful and compelling picture of the gospel. The second thing you can write down, in the beauty of the gospel, in this passage we see this, that God provides what he requires by providing, supplying, substitute. God provides what he requires by supplying a substitute. The themes that are woven together in this story are transposed to a higher key in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I loved how Carrie described that around Christmas time, that there's these Old Testament stories and themes and promises that like in a symphony, you see little hints of a chord progression or, or a melody or a harmony that later all come together in this massive and beautiful climax. And you recognize that that's been hinted at all along the way. That's what the Bible does 
with the truth of the gospel and the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. It's transposed to a higher key in the gospel. This epic story of a loving father who sacrifices his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. This story of an obedient son who trusts his father's will and obeys even to the point of death. This beautiful story of a substitutionary sacrifice that has been provided. And even in the naming of the place, it all points us to something that is far greater, something that is more solemn, more powerful, even more beautiful. And the evidence is littered throughout, even in the naming of the place, Moriah, this place where that God shows him in the mount of the Lord it will be seen. And it will be provided. Second Chronicles chapter 3 tells us that Moriah, one of the mountains there, that this is near Jerusalem. This is actually the place where the future temple would be built. The place where Isaac was spared because a ram was sacrificed in his place. That would be the same site where thousands upon thousands of rams and sheep and bulls would be sacrificed for the sins of the people of Israel. And that place, Jerusalem, outside the gate, on a hill far away, would be the place where it would be seen and provided, that God would provide his own son. Even in the naming of the place, it points us forward. We see this in in the role of the father. In Abraham's sending his son, we see an example of what God has done in sending his son his only son, the son whom he loves. John chapter three, verse 16, that so many of us can quote by heart. It's because God so, you say it, loved the world. That he did what? That he sent his only son so that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God has provided for us his son. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his only son but offered him up freely for us, will he not graciously give us all things? God has given us his son, sacrificed his son. Why? In love. Although there is a sense of horror and, and, and tragedy and pain in the sacrifice of his son, the Bible tells us that this is actually the primary display of God's love for his people. In this, the love of God has been manifested, John tells us, and that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what the love of God has done for us. 1 John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, you and I were destined to die for our sins. And in God's love, the heavenly father sent his son The one whom, when he was baptized and came up out of the water, he thundered from the heavens to John the Baptist and Jesus and those who were around. They heard him say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John heard the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to listen to him. And then that father sent this beloved son to the cross for you and me so that we could be saved. And he didn't send him there simply to be a victim. The father sent the son to the cross so that the father could put him to death. Yes, the Pharisees falsely accused him and rigged the jury system. Yes, the Roman guards scourged him and nailed him to a cross where he suffocated to death over a course of three hours But ultimately, it is God's hand that put Jesus, the Father put the Son, to death. I want you to turn and look at this. I want you to see this because it is powerful. Isaiah chapter 53. Please turn there if you would. It's impossible to read this without seeing images of Abraham and Isaac with an altar that's been built on a solitary mountain far away from everything familiar. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. You all know the context here. Speaking prophetically about the servant of the Lord who would die as a sacrifice, who would be mistreated and oppressed and wrongly crucified. But verse 10, it says, yet... In, in spite of all of this, even though all this was unjust and wrong and tragic, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who has put him to grief? The Lord. At the cross, as Jesus hung there in agony and shame the Father poured out wrath against sin and put him to death. And why did he do that? Because he loved us. What a blasphemous and unbelieving thought that we should ever accuse God of not loving us. We should never, ever entertain those thoughts when we consider what God has done for us in our sin, in love. Not only do we see, see these gospel themes in the role of Abraham as father, but we see it in the role of the son as an obedient sacrifice. The voice from heaven said, stop, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the lad. Don't do anything to him. The one who spoke from heaven was the angel of the Lord. It was the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, the one who told Abraham to stop, could tell him to stop because one day the one who spoke would himself offer himself as the sacrifice. He would be, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The obedience and faith of Abraham, the, the humble submission and obedience of Isaac in allowing himself to be laid on the altar would be eclipsed one day as Jesus Christ knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way that you could provide, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The obedience of Abraham and Isaac is astounding, but it pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ did in the garden. And then rising and setting his face resolutely, giving himself over to be arrested, silently standing trial, being scourged, and then being crucified, when at one moment merely the thought could have eradicated this entire earth from existence. That is humble obedience. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see here a picture of Christ in the obedience of Isaac, but we also see a picture of Christ in the substitutionary sacrifice. You see, this idea of substitution is central to this passage. It needed to be understood by Abraham and Isaac. It needed to be understood by that generation of Israelites in the wilderness. Keep in mind, Moses is writing this for a people who had just witnessed the plagues. You know what they had just done? They had just slaughtered a lamb. And they painted the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. So that when the angel of death came into Egypt to kill the firstborn, they would be spared. This idea of substitution was so central to what God wanted his people to understand. There must be a sacrifice. There must be substitution for you if you would avoid the death that you deserve. He wants to drive it in. It's driven in by the sacrifice of Isaac, by the, by the institution of Passover, by the law that will be put into place as the people enter the land over and over and over again, this idea of sacrifice. We see it in Isaiah chapter 53. We see it in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You might say, well, he's doing this as an example or, to, or merely to overcome uh, our enemy death. And those things are true, but we get to the heart of it here in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here it is. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the wrath, the judgment. The judgment 
Isaiah says, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the Father has laid on the Son, the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The one who obeys and dies in our place instead of us. This is at the heart of the gospel. If you take this away, if you lose this, the gospel crumbles. There are many good benefits and blessings of the gospel that we are, we are cleansed and that we are adopted and that we are victorious over death, but none of these things are possible if there is not atonement made for sin. If Jesus is not a substitutionary sacrifice for us, it all falls apart. This is the heartbeat at the center of the gospel, that Christ died in our stead. We sang it this morning. Many of the hymns that are the best ones celebrate this truth. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And what do we say to that? Hallelujah. What a savior. He did that for us. He did that for us. Jesus is the lamb of God. He says to his disciples, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. There's not a lot of like application for this sermon. There's an old hymn by John Newton. It says, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise our Savior's name. That's what we do in response to this. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The Father loves us. The Son took our place. God has provided what he requires, a perfect, sinless, spotless, obedient sacrifice. Because of Jesus' death, we can live. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. 